It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, we are on a three-week journey through a study that Rick is calling 21 Days of Prayer. Last week, we looked at humbling ourselves before the Lord and confessing our sins to Him. Today, we are on the second week of this journey, which will lead us to a focus on our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with other people that God has put into our lives. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 15, in a sermon that Pastor Rick has entitled, Rule-Breaking Prayer. Here's Rick. Last Sunday, I mentioned that when church attenders have been surveyed, a high percentage of them admit that when it comes to the topic of prayer, an immense amount of guilt just seems to be felt by so many. Is that really any wonder to us? I mean, when you realize that communication is the key, or a key, in any relationship. So that if Satan can come in and disrupt and discourage or confuse us with guilt in this key area of communicating with our Heavenly Father, then what kind of an enormous victory has he achieved over us? Well, now, in light of the fact that guilt is such a widespread reaction by so many of us to prayer, could it be, could it just be that potentially so much of what we think we know about prayer could be inaccurate and at worst hogwash? Ooh. I mean, after all, what's going on inside of us that stops us from praying? What is it that's going on inside of us that inhibits us or makes us feel restrained in prayer? Why do we seem to have such a lack of confidence in talking to our Heavenly Father that has literally blown away everything that normally or should in the past have kept us from just talking openly with Him? Is it because in our minds we think, It won't do anything, or it won't change anything. So we kind of have a fatalistic attitude of, well, whatever. (laughs) Or could it be, you think more of like, well, who am I? Uh, Who am I to ask for anything? I mean, I'm not worthy of it. Uh, I look at the sin of my life and think God wants to listen to me. Or you might think of your age, that you're so young Oh, yeah, God listens to adults or older people, but not me. Or you look at your spiritual maturity and you realize, man, I've got so far to go. Or maybe you think God isn't interested in what you would have to say or what you would ask for. Or maybe you think, I already know what God would say to my request, so why do I even ask? (laughs) Or what about, I feel stupid. I, I just don't know how to ask for it. I'm afraid I would say something wrong. I mean, after all, he's, he's God. I mean, who wants to feel like Dorothy in front of the Wizard of Oz and be shamed like that? Or for some of us, could it be, I'm not sure I trust his heart. I look at my circumstances, and then I wonder, does he really care about me? Oh, yeah, I, I admit God is good, but I just don't know if he's being good to me. That's why it's very important for us this morning 
take our Bibles and open up, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 13 this morning because our God wants to set the captives free. He does not want guilt to be the experience of not only our understanding, but in our practice of prayer. Now, as you turn to Luke 11 in your Bibles, or if you didn't bring one, there should be one in the the chair pocket right in front of you. Uh, Please turn there, because as we begin, let's once more, though, understand the context of what Jesus is going to say to us in verse 5 through verse 13. The immediate context is that Jesus and what he has to say about prayer is part of a a larger conversation about this same topic. Look at verse 1, Luke chapter 11. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So again, we notice here, the disciples who are with Jesus 24-7 are fascinated by the way Jesus prays. I mean, they're in that place where they, what they saw and what they heard has created within them this, this heart desire to be able to approach God the way Jesus approaches God. And by the way, prayer is one window into the most intimate part of our heart. Because the way we pray reveals the real nature of our relationship with God, just as the way we communicate to other people reveals the way our relationship or the depth or the lack of depth in our relationship with them. One of my mentors in life, Dr. Howard Hendricks, who is now with the Lord, I remember told me the story when he was leading a Bible study with a group of businessmen in Dallas, Texas. And the week before, one of those businessmen had come to Christ. And when their group met next in their time of study, they eventually came to a time of prayer. And Hendricks, Dr. Hendricks said that the very first few prayers that, from the group members were typical, you know, typically timid and safe expressions of prayer, as you often will hear in many prayer times. And then it went around the circle and came to the new Christian. He jumped in and said this, Hi God, this is Jim, remember me? I was introduced to your son last week and I trusted him as my savior. Man, I just want to tell you what a difference you've made in my life. And Dr. Hendricks says it was like someone set off a bomb in the middle of the group. He said that just totally transformed the way this group started praying simply because of this guy's authenticity and realness in talking to God. He hadn't known any better. He hadn't been told the right vocabulary yet. <laughs> So notice, Jesus here in Luke 11 willingly wants to teach his disciples and us how to pray. So what do we have, starting in verse 2 to verse 4? We have what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Notice, in those verses, 2 to 4, Jesus teaches us what to pray. 
not that we have to use these exact words, but these are the important subjects to be talking to our Heavenly Father about. But then look at verse 5. Because now in verse 5, Jesus is going to change direction from what to pray and now addresses how to pray. Now, please understand, both of those are important when we pray. Both content and conducts. Both what we say and how we say it. So starting in verse 5, though, Jesus is going to speak to the how because this is often where the choke point of hogwash is for so many of us. We're taught how to pray through two very vivid scenarios. Scenario number one. Notice, we have a friend in need who goes to a friend of his. Starting in verse 5. Jesus is going to describe for his, his audience then and for us now a very real-life predicament. And again, this is a situation that everybody in that original audience could relate to and could easily imagine themselves being in. And the story revolves around a relationship between two friends. That's why in the initial verses, the word friend, friend, friend keeps get popping up all over the place. And that word friend does not mean acquaintance. That's typically the way we as Americans use the word. A friend is, well, that's somebody I know. They know my name. They maybe know where I live. They may know where I work. But that's about it. No, friend back then describes two people who are utterly devoted to each other, incredibly kind to each other, and therefore they're dear to each other. That's a friend. In fact, it's interesting, Aristotle, just a couple of, hundred years before this time, talking about this very same word, friend, describes it as one soul inhabiting two bodies. So we would often say of a friend today, oh, that person is a kindred spirit with me. See, that, that catches more of the flavor of this word. It's describing someone who, who we know, has got, we've got a wonderful chemistry between us. It's a special relationship It's got incredible depth to it. That's friend. Now pay attention to the details here. Jesus presents this scene, first of all, as a question. He presents it as a question in order to draw us into the story. Verse 5, verse 6. So Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. There's the question. What's happening here? Well, obviously, the first man has a friend who shows up at his house after a journey. So evidently, this journey was long, or it was delayed, because he arrives in the middle of the night. Now, the host has nothing to set on the table before him. And in that time and in that culture, that would be an embarrassment not to feed him. So the question that Jesus poses is, would you run over to your close friend's house in the middle of the night and ask for three loaves of bread? The implication is the audience would say, well, if that other person is truly a friend of mine, I probably would do that. But understand what that means in that day. 
by this time of night, your friend has already been in bed for four to five hours. He did not stay up watching late night television. (laughs) And what is his response? The second friend. When the banging starts happening on his door, verse 7, do not bother me. Now, it's interesting, the English word bother is literally translating two Greek words here, to cause or to bring trouble, to cause or to bring difficulty, to cause or to bring labor. We might say, do not inconvenience me. Now, why is this second guy being so rude? Well, look at the rest of verse 7. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. See, unlike our day, the average family back then lived in one-room homes. That's the average. And that one room was multifunctional. So it was the kitchen, it was the living room, it was the classroom, it was the play area, it was also the bedroom. So at night, when the door is shut, then the sleeping pillows, the cushions, and the blankets are spread out on the floor And so it's literally then wall-to-wall people stacked next to each other sleeping. So to ask his friend to get up is not just bothering this guy from his sleep. That's the least of the problems. It's also going to disturb everybody in the family. He's got to step over or he's going to step on people. He's going to make noise. He's going to have to move sleeping kids around to get them away to be able to open the front door. He's going to have to light a lamp. He's going to have to scavenge around for the requested bread. Now notice how the crux or the central point of the story comes in verse 8. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Notice carefully the details. Even though the first friend comes on the basis of the friendship, Yet the second man does not respond on the basis of the friendship that the two of them have. In other words, the depth of relationship did not get this guy out of bed. And that's why it's really important to notice in the middle of verse eight that little word, in the middle of that verse eight, that little word, yet. It's an emphatic word. It focuses our attention on the very next idea. Well, what's the next idea? If someone, by the way, if someone was reading the story and they came to that word yet, you would notice a change in pitch or volume in their voice. Maybe something like, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet, because, and then he would go on. In other words, it would really draw your attention in to the very next idea. And what is it the next idea is? That the second friend responds because of the first friend's impudence. Now, some of your translations in front of you have a different word, and it's an unfortunate translation because you have in front of you the word persistence. Now, it is persistence, but it's much, much more than just that. The difficulty of translating here this verse, and especially this word, is because this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. But... In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
we do have another use of it. It is used in a negative way, but it does help us understand and opens up for us this is the concept behind it. So hold your finger here in Luke 11. Turn back, if you would, in, the, in, your, in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Proverbs and jump back to Proverbs chapter 7 for just a few minutes. In Proverbs chapter 17, we have Solomon warning about the danger of the immoral relationship, of sexual relations outside of marriage. And he paints the picture of what he saw one day of a young man engaging with this immoral woman. Start at verse 10 with me. And behold, the woman meets him, this man, She's dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now on the street, now on the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold, there's the same word. Here's the same word that in our New Testament of translation of Luke 11 is impudence or persistence. So hang on to that. And with bold face, she says to him, and then she goes on and begins to describe all the things that she has prepared for her invitation. And what is the invitation? Look at verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Okay, do you get the picture? This woman is out in public She physically grabs this guy who is not her husband. She plants a sloppy, wet kiss on his lips and invites him to join her in bed. The description of this woman is intended to absolutely stun us, to shock us. For this is not the way a woman is supposed to act. She's being bold. She's being brazen. She's being daring. She's being audacious, even impudent in her actions and her words. She's literally blown right back by what is socially acceptable and broken all the rules. Okay? Back to Luke 7. That's why it's so difficult to translate this one word in Luke 11.8 by only one English word. Because the term here, impudence in the English Standard Version or persistence in some of your other translations, that term describes how the friend in need is now being incredibly bold in coming in the middle of the night when it's going to be very disruptive to his other friend. And it's not just, it's, I mean, it's, it's not socially acceptable to be doing this kind of stuff. To come in an inconvenient hour and ask for bread when everybody's already in bed. But again, it's more than bold. It's also being audacious. It's daring. It's impudent. It's brazen in his, in his insistence. It's ignoring what's conventional. It's blowing right by all acceptable standards of conduct and without shame making his request. It's breaking all the rules of what's customary and acceptable. Okay, so in what way does this scripture now help me to know how to pray? Well, look, watch what Jesus does. He now tells us. Look at verse 9. How does it open? And so I tell you, Jesus now interprets this little story as his first scenario for us. And so I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus describes the how of prayer as an asking, as a seeking, as a knocking, because this is exactly what the first friend did in pursuit of getting three loaves of bread. Now, those three words, ask, seek, knock, are imperatives, they're commands. Now, let me get technical just for a quick second. I don't like doing this too often, but I do need to do it here for a second here. These are present active imperatives, meaning we are to keep on doing them. Jesus is telling us to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking, because that's exactly what the first friend did when he heard the word, do not bother me. He kept pounding on the door. He kept asking his friend, no, come on, I really need this bread. You've got to get up and help me. See, Jesus is not just encouraging us. He's commanding us to be like the first friend, to be audacious, to be bold, to be daring, to even brazenly persistent in making our requests known to God. See, if we, have a, if we have a concern with what is convention or what's acceptable to others, it'll keep us from continually asking, seeking, and knocking with God. Because what we'll do is we'll end up thinking, well, I've already asked once. I've already been down this road once before. I've already knocked on that door. I didn't get an answer. I guess I'm just going to go home. So this first scenario reveals the very first truth that Jesus wants us to know about how to pray. And let me state it like this. Do not hold back, but be boldly audacious in persistently making your requests known to God. Boldly, audaciously, Jesus asks us to do that. But that's just the first scenario. There's two. And the second scenario extends the first, but brings balance to the first. Because you're probably already running way ahead of me in your thinking. Because if all we would have is just one scenario, this first scenario from Jesus, we could be tempted to think that God is like the second friend who doesn't want to be bothered with our needs. Wouldn't that be pretty easily how we could flip to that side of things? Yet, if we, yet, again, if we are bold enough, if we're persistent enough, if we're brazenly audacious enough, finally we'll get God's reluctant help. Okay, okay, finally, okay, I'll do it. I'll get up. But that's not, that's bad theology, folks. That's why we have the second scenario. So to counter the potential that we might slide towards that, in that drift, towards thinking that way about prayer, Jesus gives us scenario number two. A son in need goes to his father. Now watch how it, how it parallels here. What was scenario one? A friend in need goes to his friend. Scenario two, a son in need goes to his father. Look at verse 11. So what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Okay, question here. Look carefully. What is the common thread in what the son is asking for? Food. So on the one hand, we've got a hungry son 
And on the other hand, we have a father who is in a position to meet that need. This is a part of a normal, healthy father-son relationship. A son asks for the father to meet a need. Normal, expected, healthy. Now, Jesus points out the two, first of all, he points out the two things that any normal father will not do in this situation. First thing that a father will not do is he will not give his son something inappropriate. In other words, to hand the son a snake, can the snake be eaten for food? Yes, I've been told it tastes like chicken. But what is a snake to a Jewish person? Unclean food. It's not that he wouldn't, couldn't eat it. It's not that he might get some protein out of it. But very inappropriate, it's not good for him to eat that kind of food. Again, you have to keep this Jewish mentality in your mind of who the audience is. So, sure, uh, any normal father will not give to one of his kids something that's inappropriate for them to have. Second thing that a father will not do is he will not give son or daughter something dangerous or harmful. Again, can scorpions be eaten? Yes, I went online and looked. Yes, you can. Not sure why you'd want to, but think of it in terms of a child with a father giving them something where there is a poisonous tail involved makes an unsafe meal endeavor with it probably not a good, wise thing to do. It's dangerous. It could be harmful for the kid. Okay, what is Jesus driving at here? Look at the opening statement of verse 13. Here's the point. So Jesus says, so if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Okay, stop for a second. Let's just just, just grab that phrase right there. So even though fathers have this sinful nature on the inside of them that often makes them act in self-centered or even mean ways, yet out of love for their children, they know how to give what is good when asked for it. Okay, now look at, now look at the middle statement of verse 13. How much more will your heavenly Father give? Ooh. In other words, we have a heavenly Father who is perfectly good, who has no trace of self-centeredness or evil in Him. How will He respond to our requests? The last of verse 13. How much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? By the way, did that last statement surprise you? How many of us in reading this following along with the flow of Jesus' thought, we're expecting it to end with how much more will your heavenly Father give what is good to those who ask? And yet, isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying? Isn't giving us the Holy Spirit at any moment the best gift that He could give us? See, having the fullness of His Spirit Having the Spirit minister to us at any moment and and towards any need that we bring to Him is exactly what our deepest need is. 
Let me give you seven just to think about. There are more than these, but just let me give you seven of these off, off, off the top of my head. For example, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 to 19, and 1 John 3.24 and 1 John 4.13, the Holy Spirit makes the abiding presence of Jesus Christ real in our lives. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. Second, the Holy Spirit allows us to experience being loved by God. Romans 5.5. Third, the Holy Spirit allows us to have hope in any of our circumstances. Romans 5.13. The Holy Spirit teaches us all things and reminds us of, of what Jesus' words were to us. John chapter 14 and verse 26. The Holy Spirit brings life to our mortal bodies. You hear me, I like to talk about it as life with a capital L, not a lowercase l. That's Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. The Holy Spirit confirms our standing as children of God. We're not orphans, we're his kids. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives me a gift that I can use to the benefit of other people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 17. Those are just seven. There's more. But if God is our Heavenly Father, will in response to our need give us His very best, the best that He has, then will He not then also Give us any other good thing that we might need. If he doesn't restrict the best, then how would he restrict anything else? In fact, Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 reminds us of this, that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, will he not also with him graciously give us, what are the last two words? All things. So the second scenario brings an extension and a balance to the first one. A second truth about how to pray. And that is we are to trust our Heavenly Father's heart. That He will give what is best when we ask. These are very well-known verses. But I found myself this week often sitting back and looking at him and just taking a deep breath. Wow. And thinking about the way I pray. So let's combine together the two scenarios and the two truths that Jesus is trying to direct us to about how to pray. Put them together. And this is what we got. It may feel like we're breaking all the rules. And yet we are invited to be boldly audacious in persistently asking for what we need because we can trust our Heavenly Father's heart that He will be good to us. Folks, that's breaking the rules kind of stuff. That will eliminate so much of the hogwash that you think you know about prayer. Pastor and author... Tony Evans was in Columbia, South Carolina to preach at a crusade in the University of South Carolina's football stadium. 
and thousands of people had gathered for the evening session. But news, report, news reports indicated that a very serious thunderstorm was headed their way. In fact, the storm was expected to hit right at 7 p.m. when the crusade was going to start. So as the sky grew dark just before the meeting began, uh, there was a real threat of cancellation. That was a real possibility that evening. So a group of preachers and other church leaders who were behind the crusade decided to get together and have a prayer meeting about it. And Evans noted that many of the preachers prayed what he would consider to be safe prayers, very undemanding of God. And then a woman by the name of Linda spoke up and asked if she could pray. And Tony said her prayer went something like this. Lord, thousands have gathered to hear the good news about your son. And it would be a shame on your name for us to have all these unbelievers go without the gospel when you control the weather and you don't stop it. So in the name of Jesus, Lord, address this storm. Well, with that, the prayer meeting broke up. Everybody took their places on the stage. The sky continued to get more and more threatening. The leader of the crusade stood up at the microphone and told the people, hey, we'll we'll go as long as we can. Umbrellas began sprouting up in the crowd. In fact, a man sitting next to Linda opened his umbrella and, and offered to shield her. She refused. Evans says he and his wife watched as the rain clouds came up to the stadium, split in two, rained on both sides of the stadium, and then came back together on the other side. But everybody that was in the football stadium stayed dry. Evans raised the question later when telling the story, how did Linda get what the preachers didn't? She had the boldness the shameless audacity to ask because she trusted her heavenly Father's heart. Wow. Father, you know, to my embarrassment, how often my prayers are so tame, so lame. I I hide behind good theology when in reality my prayers reveal a bad theology because I am not bold and audacious. I am not brave to persistently keep on asking and seeking and knocking. And maybe ultimately it's because I don't know your heart well enough. Father, thank you that this passage invites us to some rule-breaking about prayer. Father, thank you that this is an invitation to go some places in prayer with you that we maybe have never gone before, abandoning a vocabulary that is very acceptable to others, but really doesn't communicate our heart's desire. To keep on praying, even when we don't see answers immediately. To trust your heart that you will give what is good at any given moment. Father, thank you for how these two scenarios alert us to this wonderful opportunity we have because the veil has been torn. Our high priest has made the way that we can come before the throne of grace and find help in time of need. Thank you. 
I mean, we take advantage of that. And sure, it may not be always said the right way, but you know our hearts. And you know how we want to come to trust your heart. Because you're more than a friend to us. You're you're that, but you're much more. You're our loving Heavenly Father who gave us everything in His Son. May then we as your kids find in your grace to us the opportunity and the joy and the privilege to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. Lord, I pray that for myself. I pray that for my dear brothers and sisters in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.